Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. We're about to listen to the 26th episode of Screen Talk, and we've got a lot of ground to cover this time. We're joined by HitFix's Chris Tapley, Anne's former co-host of the podcast Oscar Talk, to discuss the Golden Globe nominations and how they've affected the Oscar race as well. I tried to get a word in edgewise. Then we share our top ten lists. This episode runs a bit longer than usual because, well, there have just been a lot of movies released this year and not a lot of overlap on our list. We urge you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave reviews of the show there. You can also share feedback with us on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. I'm doing the uh, introductory honors today because we have a guest. We have my old sparring partner, Chris Tapley of Incontention.com, back by popular demand, uh, joining us on this sort of uh, awards-heavy week uh, where we had the Golden Globe nominations bright and early this morning, and yesterday the SAG nominations, and last weekend we had the Los Angeles film critics, Eric Cohn the critic and deputy editor of IndieWire, of course, is here. And uh, let's all just jump into it. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. I should correct you, by the way. It's uh, hitfix.com and contention.com is Old long gone. Die hard. <laughs> Old ha- I think she, of it she as was, in contention. That's so funny. She was lost in the fog of nostalgia. I mean, I have to tell you, <laughs> I mean, I'm usually so pretty confident on this podcast. I feel feel like, you know, I know what I'm talking about, but with you two together, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm shaking a little bit. I don't know. I don't really know where we're going here. So, so let's see. Let's see how far we can take it. You guys I'm sure you'll do fine, Eric. <laughs> so so I saw you yesterday, Chris, um, over at a hotel I had never been to before in Hollywood, um, where there was a junket for Unbroken, the Angelina yeah. Jolie film. And we were there was a like a group of us moving from room to room, you know, talking to Miyavi, talking to Jolie, talking to uh Jack O'Connell, and uh, you know, we were shooting the the breeze a little bit. Um but uh, that was the big uh, whiff, if you like, this week, uh, don't you think, with SAG and uh, Golden Globes? Totally. Um, I think it's interesting because when you look at those nominations and you look at the Globe nominations last year, it's almost like they are actively trying to step away from their uh, – is this R-rated – by the way, you can say whatever okay. you want from their star fucking roots. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and you don't have Clint Eastwood and you don't have Angelina Jolie. And I think uh, you do have Jennifer Aniston, however, you do, who was also a SAG nominee. And they've certainly hit the uh, kissing baby circuit, if you will, pretty hard for her. They did very well by her. I have to say the performance yeah. in Cake is perfectly strong. I, I just didn't expect such a small sort of um, unimposing film to, to gain so much traction. It shows how popular she is. 
Well, I have a question for you guys because Cake is the only real blind spot for me in award season right now. I mean, it, it was even more of an obscure title than Still Alice, you know, when the Fall Festival circuit came around. Do do we think, I mean, based on what you're saying, that this is basically star fucking going on here? Or is this really a movie that some people actually like or at least, you know, respect for the performance? Uh, I think maybe a little bit in the case of Hollywood Foreign Press, maybe. But, uh, you know her fellow actors chimed in for her. And I think that it says it, you know, I'm not a fan of the movie. I think the performance is fine, but I think maybe it says plenty about the category this year. I'm uh, with you there. They see the big, the, the two, the, the big performance that got left out has to do, I think with the fact a lot of people resisted the homesman and, you know, or didn't go to see it or it was too down or it didn't get good enough reviews. Whereas I think cake, everybody was curious and they went to see it. I think it's a question of how well uh, people were able to get these films screened and how much work uh, Jennifer was willing to do to go around on the dog and pony circuit. She obviously did, did her job. Yeah. And I just, it makes me wish that a contender like Beyond the Lights had a significant campaign behind it because then you could have somebody like Gugu and Batha Raw in there. And She's that so is the best great. performance of the year from a female, in my opinion. I think, I think she did an enormously uh, brilliant job on that film. Uh, and she was good in Bell, too. It was an, a great year for her. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, I, we could go back to Trax and Mia Wazakaska. But if the Weinstein Company wasn't going to campaign, they weren't going to campaign. And that was the end of it. Yeah. And with Beyond the Lights, it's relativity, and I guess it didn't make any money or whatever. I, I have to confess, I didn't even know the movie had already come out, which uh, shows you that they weren't doing their job really. Honestly. I mean, I, I, I don't want to like lay that blame at them, but it is weird for for somebody like me to not really be aware of that. I mean, I certainly got the screening invites, and I certainly. Uh, saw the outdoor promotion, but uh, it just didn't really click to me. I kept thinking it was a December release. It was in Toronto, which is where I saw it. And I'm a fan of Gina Prince Bythewood, who is uh, just one of the better directors around. And uh, Love and Basketball was a great film. So I went to see it for that reason. And uh, you're right. If they had campaigned, she could have had a shot here. Um, and I don't I'm, know, uh, guys. I mean, honestly, the movie felt pretty lifetime-ish to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I think she's good in it, but it's just not a strong enough film. And I do wonder if there, that has to have some factor in this conversation, because even not still, not with I, the Hollywood foreign guys, the, it, I don't think it does because that's a critical assessment. And I saw the film with a sound branch member, and he uh, was on the verge of tears. I think that it's easy to maybe say that it's it's familiar, but Lifetime, no. I mean, it's very hard to do something as effective as what she did with the screenplay and how she captured the movie. And it's 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 very important as a film too to be a female centric story about shedding, uh, you know. The misogyny of super of of stardom and and the servicing of the male gaze. I think that is a very important movie, and it nails all of that really well. I don't think too many people saw it, but the the reviews are are great. Eighty four percent, Eric. Eighty four and on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's also a company with a bit of a history. I think of, uh, and and it's not even just me that would say this uh, of. I don't want to say dropping the ball. Uh, certainly, out of the furnace did not have great reviews last year. Um, but you know, well, I don't think they're equipped. I just don't. I think there's some good people there. I think they mean well. I don't think absolutely. they have. I don't. I, I know some of the the players in, in the marketing and publicity department. They know they're, what they're doing. I think it's a question of resources being applied. You know, and and it's the same thing as Weinstein Co. If they don't think there's something to be returned to them, they're not going to invest the resources. 
And it needed to make money. That's the fact as well to have those resources. And and I look at the like the poster I'm looking at right now. It it looks like Nicholas Sparks. Yeah, some kind of. It doesn't represent the film to me at all. Yeah, that's a marketing problem too. Yeah, it's one of the great. It's one of the great um, unfortunate. Um, I, I think it's a crowd pleaser. I think it would have done well if it had been handled right. But we should move on to yeah, other. Sorry things. to bog that down. So, so what? What are some of the? Um, so the other surprises this morning. I mean, I expected Aniston actually for some reason because of SAG. I decided that the Globes might go the same route. Um, what were yeah, the other I- surprises? There was a moment where she was potentially going to be in the comedy category, and I guess that would have been a really smart move, yeah, because that's a drama if there ever was. Well, let's look at it. Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston are removing vanity, are removing makeup, are are going raw, you know, and they Mm -hmm. get rewarded for it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you just you left it at that. By the way, I feel like people have written about these performances and as being transformative. As if just not wearing makeup is transformative. And I'm not saying that as a knock on the actresses. I'm saying it as a knock on how we talk about these things. Well, it does sort of play up expectations. Which kind of gets back into my point about Beyond the Lights, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think that um, Beyond the Lights, she she certainly transcends the movie. And maybe there's something to be said about that for even something like Wild, where, you know, it's not a bad movie, but it's a, a stronger performance in the movie itself in some ways. And maybe that, that's sort of what people mean when they say transformative, you know. It's like it's not like you've never seen a movie yeah. like this before, but you've never seen Reese Witherspoon like this before, and so there's some momentum yeah, behind that. The, the thing about the thing about Reese that I find sort of fascinating is that she, you know, she has an extraordinarily good track record over the years. It's just that she's made so many bad movies recently that haven't performed, and so it's almost as though people forgot what a good actress she is um, you know she's a movie star but she hasn't been one of the regulars on the uh, nomination circuit in recent years and now she's made a bit of a comeback and mm-hmm. it shouldn't be a surprise as long as she picked the right material mm-hmm. and a movie that could be marketed effectively the way fox searchlight has done it and by the way a producer of gone girl she's a smart cookie yeah but what happened with Unbroken? I mean, let's let's analyze that. I mean, Unbroken, I thought, was a solid, well-crafted, perfectly uh, terrific movie. Did I put it on my 10 best? No, I didn't. But I expected this. I really did expect the, 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 the Golden Globes voters to do so. It seemed up their alley just in terms of... Uh... The star power at director, and they, 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 I believe, tend to go for movies like this. But again, I, I feel like there's a shift there the last two years. I know there's new membership coming in every year, and again, it, it almost appears as if there is a pushback against their former kind of perception. Uh, so they came through for Selma. Because look at that best director have. lineup. That's a hugely respectable no Best kidding. director lineup. No kidding. And It'll probably be a better lineup than the Oscars lineup. I agree with you. Well, they're leaving Morton Tilden out, which I thought was interesting, but they put Fincher in. I find, uh, It's interesting you bring that up because of all the... When I fill out my, my nominations, predictions for the Oscars, when that day comes, it is that category, the director category, that stymies me the most. It's the one that is so hard to predict because they have never been um uh, easy to 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 
they always make, you know, they, they leave out Ben Affleck, they leave out Catherine Bigelow, they put in, you know, Beats of the Southern Wild or, or Amour. I mean, are they going to put in Mike Lee? Are they going to put in Martin Tilden? It's really hard to tell. Or Bennett Miller or Damien Chazelle? I am arguing now that they are going to do Bennett Miller. But the people who recognize how good movies get made, and I think the directors especially, will recognize Foxcatcher for its direction because that's what it is. It's a director's movie, I think. Well, it's interesting, I, I mean, but Steve Carell is still sort of, you know... He's in there. The actors like it, too. That's why it may have a shot at Best Picture, because actors like it, obviously, because SAG told us that. It's just in this particular year. It's it's doesn't. It's kind of a a downer, you know, cold sort of experience compared to so many other things that people are talking about. So it's, it seems like a tough proposition. And also, you know, Miller is is so. I mean, maybe you guys have different feelings about this, but just looking at the way the, the marketing campaigns run for award season, he's so uncomfortable in that role of sort of self-promotion. So you think people mm-hmm. are okay with that and they're just going to, it's not going to hurt his best director chances. Which is well, I think directors respect him. Yeah. I think it just begins and ends with that. They, they're right. not really concerned with his, how he carries himself in the media. Uh, they respect him as an artist. So I think that'll happen. We'll pick, so Chris, I'm curious, what would you, I find it hard to trust this group to come through for Ava DuVernay, for example. Are they going to come through for Selma? Selma is the film that is picking up the most momentum at the end of the year, as opposed to Unbroken, obviously. Selma is the one that's like the million-dollar baby, the one that is going to have a theatrical release and really pick up steam as it goes and has all this emotion and zeitgeist behind it. Does Ava DuVernay get in? I believe that she does. I I kind of have, since I saw the movie, uh, I I just think, Paramount needed to come around to it, understand what they had to work with. I don't think they necessarily knew um, in the early days anyway. And and it's fair enough because it was coming together very late in the game anyway. Um, I I do. I I feel like... I mean, look, we've seen weird things like Catherine Bigelow miss and and Ben Affleck miss in the same year. So you never know with with the directors, I guess. But uh, it seems to me like an obvious call. And I've, I've been getting to the point where I feel like the best picture race is between boyhood imitation game and Selma. That's the three horse race to me. I'm adding, I, uh, I, I know it's between Birdman and boyhood. Actually. I think that's what it's between. But do you guys feel at all like Birdman stuff has slowed a little bit? I mean, I know the golden globes are one thing, but just in terms of when you look at, kind of the way people are talking about that movie the way, versus the way they're talking about Boyhood. It just seems like Boyhood is just getting much more respect from people. I believe that Boyhood will win and that nothing else will take it away. I believe that Selma has an enormous amount of momentum going forward right now, so we could look forward and say Selma's going to could Selma catch up? The trick with Selma, which I'm positive will be on the ten, the top five or six or seven, may not be a top ten group this year. I believe that Selma is a small movie. It's really an indie spirit movie. So I, I wonder how, I mean, I know a yellow O will get in there. I, and and I, I wish Ava DuVernay's name was on the screenplay. That is a huge deal that she's not on the screenplay and that the writer, Paul Webb, has insisted on a, a, a contract to hang on to the the uh, right uh, to have sole credit. 
I don't quite understand if there's a reason why uh, why Paramount didn't go through a retroactive situation to, to set I that up. I agree with for, you. They could have gone through the Writers Guild and got an arbitration on that, and they did And then this would have gone away, and, and, and you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what happened there. They kind of went to they went to the writer to beg him to, you know, because she really changed the movie. She radically changed the movie. And, of course, the, the risk with going to the Writers Guild is that they're always, you know, incredibly conservative about favoring the writer over the director no matter what. But it mm-hmm. might have helped. Anyway, if she'd been on there, she might have won. And now I'm, I'm afraid, you know, that, that, that the screenplay isn't so obvious for Selma. Um, so I don't know. I, I think, I think if there's a lot of emotion behind it. So it, 12 Years a Slave, again, maybe. Maybe it happens. I don't know. I mean, it's an you call it an indie spirit movie, but what on earth would you call Boyhood? That is too. No, they both are. They both are. But Boyhood has this extraordinary an imitation game as well. Story, yes, yeah. Interestingly, um, uh, Boyhood has this extraordinary tra- trajectory. It has this story. It has the twelve years. It has the right. the writing and directing and 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 acting that all these people put in for that long period of time. It's unique. It's never happened before, and it's accessible to audiences who identify with it. And as, as children or parents or whatever they do, they, they are in that movie, and they know that it's authentic and true, and it, and it moves them. Selma is more of a standard biopic, um, if you like. Well, let me unpack that for myself a little bit. I actually would say, first of all, when we talk about boyhood, let's not forget Michael Apted. Uh, this has been done before. Not as a fiction film. I Not don't as a fiction, like but people argument. people act like it's it, Linklater cooked it up, and 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 he I did. love this movie. No one had ever done this. Way up there on my top ten list, and I give him full credit. I'm talk. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about again, as I did a moment ago, how we talk about these things, and you can let a narrative get a little ahead of itself. I think. So there's that. And then with Selma, I don't think it's a standard biopic at all. It's a slice of life, which is very rare. Usually, you get greatest hits. And you I think, think that treating a, the movie in that way was very smart in terms I of agree with that. how a biopic... They is, picked yeah. a time and a place and a moment. Uh, and what Ava brought to it, too, was was having Martin Luther King go up against the president, which which works so gratifyingly. I, that's um, what's so great about it, that we've never seen all the backroom politics yep, and stuff. Yep, it's brilliant. Yep, yep. Yeah, okay. I, mean, I actually, I, I know it's fine. I'm like fascinated listening to you guys unpack this stuff because I'm only thinking about it personally in terms of what my favorites are. I mean, I think Boyhood is is this like monumental accomplishment from kind of a film nerd standpoint. You know, it's like it's a super indie and just like it's the craftsmanship and the conception of it is is why people are relating to it because it's Linklater did something with the movies we've never seen before. But Selma is something I think we've we've seen before in terms of how someone tells the story. It's just a very well wrought story about a particular moment in time that we have not reckoned with fully yet. You know, it's, so it's 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 something we need. I, I feel very. By the way, I get very emotionally involved with Selma myself. I feel so strongly that it needs to. It's a movie that needed to be made. That it's 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 going to lead to other movies. It's it's so important. Um, and all of those feelings that I have, I'm imagining a lot of other people have, and and it will it will fuel the flames. So you might be right. You might be right, Chris. It, it may might, be it the might. Birdman, which is actually less popular. With the folks, with the with the voters yeah. on, across the board, less mainstream, if you like, um, it may not make it to to the best picture win. I love Birdman. You'll uh, you'll see how much I love it when I publish my top ten on Friday. Um, 
<laughs> and, we're and following your lead, by the way. We're doing our own top 10 this week. We're, do, we're oh, cool. uh, Eric and I are going to do ours. So you'll see how much I love Birdman and well, Boyhood very I shortly. Just, I was just going to say that Birdman is, is actually the only Academy screening that I've gone to this year. And uh, but you I thought it played nicely. So what was it? Uh, I mean, because the, the Telluride screening was, was, you know, I remember really popular as well, but it was also sort of, it was a loving, you know, which people are yeah. ready to just embrace that thing. So I imagine it was right after the Venice premiere, so everyone yeah. was kind of high and ready to see it. It was exactly. a great atmosphere to see the movie in. Um, I think the um, I think you and I we we know there's you know that there are um, factions of the academy segments of the academy. There's the, the the crafts and the art and the filmmaking segments, and then there's more the executives and the producers and mm-hmm. and there's they tend to be more mainstream. I just think Birdman plays best for the crafty side. Uh, more than it does for the mainstream side, whereas Selma goes for everybody, I suspect, and I I believe Boyhood does also. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, actually, I think Birdman's potentially going to win the SAG Ensemble and really just make it look like a serious race. Well, the actors yeah. love it. Why wouldn't they? I yeah. mean, it's about them. <laughs> Literally, when we walked out of that screening in Telluride, uh, I think Greg said to me, that's going to win Ensemble. And yeah, it's it's it's... It's about them. It's for them. Yeah. It's uh, it makes fun of them, and they get why it makes fun of them. It's They're really just to interesting. To it. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, in a ritu, no way he doesn't get direct nomination. That one I'm positive of, and Linklater uh, as well. Um, it's the other three that I go. What the hell are they going to do? <laughs> do yeah. they go with Morton Tilden? He did not get nominated by the Golden Globes. Um, do they go with Fincher? Golden, you know, I don't get the sense that Gone Girl is well liked by the Academy. I'm not even sure that Gone Girl gets into the top ten. Meanwhile, Interstellar is being utterly avoided yeah. by everyone, yeah. except for Hans Zimmer. <laughs> I'm sure you're loving that, Anne. I am. I was right, she says. But uh, you know, you're not a fan of Interstellar, or I think Interstellar is a great commercial blockbuster entertainment, and I had a fabulous time. I saw it twice. That doesn't mean that it was the right movie for awards consideration, yeah, except for tech categories. I, 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 last time we went over this, and you were not a big Interstellar fan, so now it sounds like maybe you warmed up to it a little bit. But I well, mean, I actually liked it better. It the takes second a second look. I'm on, telling uh, you now. On on seventy millimeter, yeah, it, it plays better um, as Absolutely. a big film. No question. I'm not. Did I put it on my ten best list? No. Yeah. No, it's a tough one. I mean, there's so much I respect about that movie. It's not quite there on sort of the the kind of masterpiece level that I think they were sort of creating this anticipation for, and that really worked against them. Just I'm I agree. Very. I don't think the marketing helped, and he was in, and Nolan was very much involved with the marketing, and I don't think he did himself any favors. They're just getting around. Is this what I was talking to you about yesterday, Chris? They're just getting around to the the father daughter campaign, which should have been from front and center from the beginning well they've certainly yeah they've kind of rejiggered it and started focusing on actors which they've actually been doing for a while and i think people are just now catching up to it but uh yeah it's now i had a thought but it went away Sorry. theory of everything by the way i think is a strong contender in the top five and I think it's also playing for the, for for a wide range of people. It's not. It's 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 just that it doesn't seem to be um, impressing people as a feat of filmmaking. It seems to be more about the writing and the and the acting than the directing. 
I thought maybe the directors would go for James Marsh as a sort of respected guy. I it's thought he just, did a great job. But it's almost too respectable, right? I mean, it's just a very yeah, familiar kind that's of movie. The, that's the knock on it. Yeah. And it's dealt with this, uh, I mean, both that and Imitation Game have dealt with whatever facile kind of comparisons to one another throughout the season. Right. Completely different movies. Indeed. Uh, one is more of a relationship drama, more of a marriage drama, and the other one is is more of a World War II uh, character through thriller. We're incredible. Uh, I still admire Imitation Game for all of that. Uh, Me too. That, that they accomplish. And talk about something that's playing like gangbusters. It plays this well. Crowd. It's that's why I still believe it's it's very much in the hunt to win. I don't see it as a winner. Um, someone, uh, one of our. Um, uh, awards pro, uh, campaigners um, who who isn't on the film, as far as I can tell, was trying to sell me on the fact that this is the way it's, it is the King's Speech. I don't think it is the King's Speech. I don't think it, it's not playing as well at the box office, and it's not playing as well um, even with critics as as the King's Speech did. I've said that, that about that film, and I've compared it to Argo too. But it's it's more about just understanding, I guess how it plays it, it plays broadly it, pl- it it's it's kind of a least common denominator it's what we used to always talk about of what's generally agreeable and at the end of the day it's a movie that's generally agreeable as is selma as is boyhood well now that we're talking and and we've discussed this i'm going to say that your you know that the selma argument is a good one i i see that one pulling pulling ahead oh my um, gosh guys we ran this story this week about uh, ava duvernay saying all these badass things it's so, I mean, people love reading about her. She's so well-liked, and the fact that there's that factor plus the kind of historical element of the movie that we've been talking about, it, it, just the more that we talk about it, the more it just really seems to emerge. It's not, it's not a dark horse. I mean, this is like a serious threat to the boyhood story that we've been hearing for so long, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, having that late surge of momentum is a is a it can be a very powerful thing. It, it can be the the discovery and and uh, another another woman's story. But um, Unbroken does not appear to be the one that's going to break through. Yeah. By the way, regarding the whole Paul Webb situation, I think Ava's kept it pretty classy. I want to say. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because I remember when, when there was that whole Steve McQueen situation with R- Jim Ridley last year. Uh, <laughs> not classy. You know, not yeah, classy. That, that did not go well. Although they did. They tried. It. They, they tried to it. keep it cool, but right. Uh, but then you had those gifs all over the internet of of uh, McQueen's like slow <laughs> clap. <laughs> slow burn. I use that yeah. gift to this day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So Ava will probably not do that. Well, my question is, what do you think about Whiplash? Because I actually see it as a Best Picture contender, and I see it as a Best Director contender. It's in there. It's in there. Director, really? Yeah, I see it as almost like a Ben Zeitlin thing. I mean, you cannot look at this movie and not come away with just a staggering kind of... uh, Just take away from the... Not the craft so much, but... I, I guess the confidence that he's so assured in how he delivers yeah. this movie, the and there's speed. a lot to be said for that. It's the speed and the intensity of the movie that really catches people off guard much in the way that Beast was received, even though it's not a visionary accomplishment. I think it's more like people talk about J.K. Simmons being great, 
But then it's just that the movie is it's so much more exciting. It's almost like as people have compared it to, you know, like a war movie or something. And that's that's yeah. really jarring for this young guy who kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, his and, last movie was this, you know, micro-budget musical. So it's and, the, a, and the movie ends on such a good note. That's yeah. part yeah, of Yeah, I was just going to say. It, it it's plays. hugely satisfying. Right? Yeah. So unlike something like Foxcatcher, I think uh, Whiplash definitely gets into the top ten if there is a 10, the top, whatever it is. And I definitely, as for best picture, and I think screenplay, and I also, um, I also think, though, that what will likely happen is that they like Whiplash, it will win one thing. It will win J.K. Simmons. It is so clear. I mean, the, the, uh, the supporting actor list is solid. We now know exactly what the Oscar nominations are going to be. It is not going to deviate from this group. And Simmons is the front runner, and he will win everything. Watch out for editing on Whiplash. I'm just saying. Mm. I mean, it is tightly assembled, and I so, think so you that think, group yeah. could be interested in that. So, just I pointing agree. out. I agree. Well, it's it's interesting to see so many of the big ones go down. You know, the the Exodus is is a, is a complete dud. You know, it, it, the, the tech the tech. It would be fun to see Whiplash in those technical categories that are so mm-hmm. often dominated by the big boys. No, it's so well edited, too. I mean, it's just that finale is extraordinary. I would give it a sound mixing nomination. Like, it, it, it just, it's an, the movie becomes a bit of an experience as it goes. Yeah. No, it's, it's intense. It's, it's intense, but it's extremely satisfying. Yeah. Incredibly satisfying, as you, as you said. Well, I think we should probably wrap this up and move on to the 10 best. Chris, it's been so much fun having you. Oh, am I getting the kick, the boot here? Uh, well, so I don't know how to... much time we can go with this. What, what, what <laughs> is there more, Eric? What, what more should we ask Chris while we've got him? Do you really like be on the lights? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> look out for my top 10 on Friday. <laughs> it's so we great to have in. you here. Come back what, anytime. What, what's, uh, well, what was I going to say here? So you guys are about to do your top ten list like we used to do? Yeah. I was going to say I kind of want to sit here and listen, but actually don't. I'll just listen later. <laughs> but, but thank you for having me on. It was it really was cool. It was really fun. Well, come yeah, back yeah. anytime. Totally. Bye Thanks, bye. guys. Chris. Bye. Okay, so moving right along, it's time to uh, do that thing that critics and journalists tend to do at this time of year. It's it's our t- time for our top ten list, uh, which, uh, you know, Personally, I start writing mine in January because there's just so much to go through. Let's start with the additional categories, and then we'll do our our top ten list from there. So is Best Director the first first one on our list? It may as well be. That's always a good place to start. And do you want to go first? All right, I'll go first. So my Best Director, I'm going to... preface this by saying it's actually two parts to it very quickly because it is Richard Linkletter for Boyhood because I think Boyhood is the most extraordinary directing achievement as a whole this year but I also want to say as a sort of runner-up Closed Curtain, Jafar Panahi's film which he made under House Arrest in Iran is this really extraordinary surreal movie that's partly a story about a guy on the lam, it's partly about his own kind of creative crisis and to me that's as much of a, an extraordinary accomplishment for a director as somebody who, like Linklater, can make this sort of long-term commitment. So that's my best director, Anne. How about you? I'm going with uh, Alejandro Gonzalez in here, too, because what he did on Birdman, I mean, as audacious and wonderful, this is a hard call to do. You'll see between Boyhood and Birdman, you know, very hard to make that call. But I just think that what he did on Boyhood was so audacious, and he went into his 
deepest emotions. He went into a kind of state of honesty and candor and, and bravery that I find just uh, inspiring. And uh, that included the way he shot the movie, the way he constructed it, the way he and uh, his cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki, uh, executed it. What the actors had to do was also a very high degree of difficulty and, uh, and required uh, incredible prep and, and uh, delivery. And so I just applaud it 100%. Well, speaking of Emmanuel Lubezki, we should move on to Best Cinematographer. That's mine. I mean, I thought about this really hard because there, there's a lot of interesting cinematography achievements this year. Um, you know, there, there is uh, Mr. Turner, um, I even really thought that Jean-Luc Godard's Goodbye to Language had some really fascinating cinematography in terms of what it did with 3D. So that all kinds of interesting stuff going on behind the camera. But really, Birdman was the one that did it for me. You know, this kind of the sense of an unbroken shot um, that is not purely there as a gimmick, but at the same time, it's a movie that's sort of about gimmickry, and it just felt like it was in tune with the movies, the themes and attitudes, and also just so well accomplished. Like, you were always wondering how the camera was going to move next. You know, and being excited about something that's that geeky as a part of the storytelling experience is so rare. And so that really is my number one for, uh, for a lot of different reasons. And I can't get it out of my head. It's mine, too. So I'm not going to. Uh, you've said it very well. We can move on to the next uh, category. Um, best, and I would say that the Oscar uh, for uh, Lubezki is his to lose because uh, he won last year, and I think he's going to win again this year. Um, my best supporting actress is Patricia Arquette of Boyhood. I think... Um, I, I'm, I'm a little bit sort of piqued by, by people, you know, on Twitter or online or wherever the comment came in, you know, that suggests that she's hardly on the screen at all. She's on the screen for 12 years, you know, she's there. She's the mom. She's she's the one who's who's handling all of those children and all of that, uh, you know, the husbands and the alcoholism and the jobs and, uh, you know, the kid going away to college. That amazing moment when when she's she just thought there would be more. Um, I I think this woman uh, has had a great career, but this is the crowning achievement and would arguably hold uh, a best actress. Uh, uh, candidate as well as, as supporting, but that's where they're com- campaigning her, and that's where I'm putting her for the moment. So, you know, it's an extraordinary accomplishment, and somewhere near my number one. Um, but just to to uh, kind of differentiate myself in this one, I actually want to single out Elizabeth Moss and Listen Up, Philip, which you know is a movie that divides people because of Jason Schwartzman's character. He's not super likable, but as the girlfriend character, Elizabeth Moss, I think does her best work. She's really, really. Uh, believable as somebody who's trying to like wrestle free of this very destructive relationship and kind of regain her individuality which she does and a lot of it sort of internalized with her expressions and so forth and I've seen the movie twice and, and both times she really stood out to me as, as the best aspect of it so that's my pick um, we'll move along to uh, supporting actor do you want to go first I'm going to go with J.K. Simmons, uh, as we discussed earlier. I mean, he he is that. He, he who can compete? I mean, he's he's he does this. He summons up this this fierce, um, incredibly abusive but inspirational uh, professor, and and he owns it. There's there's nothing. Uh, no one can come close to him. Well, I would say one person can come close to him, and that's my number one, which is Ethan Hawke. 
in the category. And just to go back to the boyhood conversation a little bit, I mean, to me, it's it's what he does in that movie that really sets in motion the way that this boy, who then kind of becomes a young man over the course of the movie, perceives his reality because Hawk drops in over the course of this guy's life, you know, this sort of absent father figure who offers some advice, but also very mixed portraits of the world. And it's, I think, one of the more interesting things Hawk's done. You see him age, just as you do Patricia Arquette, but also that there are so many different elements in play that, we, that remain off screen and are only sort of implied by the way that he carries himself. And I just thought it was a fascinating way to represent somebody going through a lot more than they can convey to someone else in the moment. Uh, so that's my favorite uh, supporting actor role. Uh, let's move along. We got adapted screenplay. That's always a tough one to figure out. Do you want to uh, share yours first? Yeah. The the one that I um, went with is Imitation Game. And I've argued for a long time that of all the scripts that I've come across this year, this is the one that packs <laughs> the most bang for the buck, if you like. I mean, it goes through this history that we should have known, but we don't. It pulls through this extraordinary Alan Turing character, well uh, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, but it also uh, deals with his sexuality. It deals with um, the fight to uh, beat the Nazis in World War II, solving the Enigma Code, creating the first computer. Everything is in there, and I just applaud them uh, for pulling this out as well as they did. Well, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, Imitation Game is an interesting example because of the way that it's dealing with the, you know, sort of there's this historical understanding of who this guy is, but there's a side of him that we don't really know, and it, it brings sort of the the knowledge of the book of sort of these little details, and it folds them into the plot, which is also something that I think that um, Gone Girl does uh, in Gillian Flynn's screenplay based on her, her novel because uh, there, it's not historical, but there are, there are a lot of details in this book that, you know, if you read it, you know, you're thinking about it in, in a certain kind of way in terms of how it's, uh, how it's doing that. Um, and, and I think that what the movie does is it, it puts them into a much more kind of energizing format. You know, the movie moves in a really interesting way, whereas the book is, you know, a little bit more static, I think. Um, but, but I would say it ties on my list with, uh, a movie I know you can't get enough of, Van, which is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, um, <laughs> uh, which is also, I mean, it's just a, such a different kind of text than something you would be able to picture as a movie, and yet there it is being a movie that's incredibly faithful to the source material, and obviously not an easy thing to do. So those are my two favorites in that category. I had some problems, as you know, with Inherent Vice, and uh, I don't consider that to be one of the great adaptations uh, of our time. Uh, I don't know. Uh, meanders, and uh, it lacks coherence, but all power to you. Maybe uh, it's Eric. an inter- maybe it's an interstellar thing, and you just got to see it a couple times, and then it'll settle. You know? <laughs> I've heard that. A couple of people have been telling me to go see it a second time, yeah. and I am open. Uh, I had a good time at... at, uh, at at Inherent Vice. I would be happy to look at that film again. There was plenty to, to look at there and plenty of entertaining uh, moments. But my original screenplay is Boyhood. Um, we don't have to belabor this, but what I think uh, Linklater did, um, Linklater did, was was extraordinary. And it, the, the idea that he was able to put some 
through lines in there that pay off at the end that he put in at the beginning, uh, you know, sort of, sort of shows you that he had some idea of where he was going. He didn't know how this kid was going to turn out. He didn't know all sorts of things. The casting was so crucial. Um, but every, every year he thought about it. He, 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 he considered it. And there was, there was something to do for two weeks every year that in the end, and we can applaud the editors as well and the actors, but in the end, it is Linklater that pulled this whole thing together. So I'm giving him the credit for the, for the screenplay on this one. It's pretty incredible, but my my own personal favorite is the screenplay for Winter Sleep, the Palme d'Or winner at Cannes this wow. year. Wow. Well, come on. I mean, what do you expect from me? I have to have one of those oddball choices, you know? And uh, I have to tell you, this movie, it's three hours and 15 minutes long. Uh, it's a Turkish film. Uh, it's got this kind of Scrooge-like landowner at the center of its plot, very Brechtian in terms of how things unfold. As he, he basically spends a lot of time in this mansion reflecting on his, his world and you know, in one scene he's a sympathetic character, and the other scene he's a, he's a terrible person. And I love the way the script kind of wrestles with that. It builds to stuff. It, it does pay off to, to go with a movie of this length. It's very funny and surprising in parts. Other times it slows down to a glacial pace. But I'm never tired of listening to these people talk, and I think that's just uh, you know such an interesting kind of balancing act. And uh, you know, and not a lot of people have seen this movie in the U.S. yet, but I hope that. Some of them find time to when it opens later this month. So that's my uh, original screenplay. Now we're arriving at one that is not factoring into the um, Oscar race in any capacity, which is the worst film of the year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although it's certainly I have many candidates. Yeah. Well, you know that one of my badges of honor uh, is to uh, see the bad movies coming and skip them in advance. You were telling me that you were missing a screening of Annie uh, right now, and I was saying maybe that's a good thing, but um, uh, based, based on what I've heard. But I'm, uh, I did manage to see some really bad movies, including 300 Rise of an Empire, Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, George Clooney's Monuments Men. But the worst one of all was Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, the one that I was so disappointed by, the one that I sat there just wishing I could run out of the theater screaming because it was so unpleasant for me. So, just repetitive, uninspired, incredibly derivative, nothing new, nothing exciting, nothing worth sticking around to watch well, at all. I mean, in my situation, the weird thing is that, uh, you know, I... I'm relatively selective when it comes to movies I think are going to be really terrible unless I have to see them at film festivals and the like. And I end up avoiding a lot of stuff that, that people say is, you know, really bad. But I was, I was very let down. I will say my biggest disappointment of the year, even though it didn't seem like it was necessarily going to hit the mark anyway, was Darren Aronofsky's Noah. Um, because I think Aronofsky is this amazing talent and one of the more interesting American filmmakers to emerge in the last, you know, 25 years or so. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, since Pi has followed such an interesting trajectory um, to the point where, you know, I think somebody like that would be great for working on that scale, and I really wanted that movie to work. And, in fact, there is one sequence in the film, which is this Genesis sequence, that's jittery and kind of scary in certain ways, that I think is one of the best sequences of the year. But the rest of the movie is really bland kind of stupid, frankly, with those rock monsters running around, even if they're technically angels and it's, uh, you know, a faithful adaptation. And I just, I don't know, I, I just could not roll with that movie. So it was a real letdown for me. 
I wouldn't go as far as to make it the worst film of the year because, you know, the great thing about Darren Aronofsky is that he is so entertaining and never boring and never dull, even if he doesn't know how to handle visual effects, which is part of the problem with this movie. But um, and he's also dead sincere, you know, dead in earnest. So, uh, yeah, it was a disappointment for me, too. I got a lot of respect um, for the guy. But look, this Noah is what it is. But, you know, we you know, hopefully he'll figure something out next time. I'm not I'm not writing him off. So. So the next uh, category is Best Unreleased uh, Film of the Year, and I will argue for Deborah Granick's Stray Dog. I don't understand why has this film not been picked up. It's an excellent documentary, totally compelling. She's a great filmmaker, and uh, yeah, she, she goes um, into the belly of, of, of poor people in America by following this uh, veteran who, who's a biker and, and, and all his travails and, and his strengths and weaknesses. And, and I find it uh, to, to be, you know, compelling work. Uh, is this one of those things where just because we're, we're looking at, at poor people, there's no interest? I, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting selection. My, uh, my best unreleased film of the year is uh, maybe less of a head-scratcher in terms of why it hasn't been released. It's um, over five hours long, so that kind of tells you something. It's called From What Is Before... Uh, we talked about it on this podcast over the summer when I was at the Locarno Film Festival. It's um, directed by the uh, Filipino director, Lav Diaz, whose movies tend to run pretty long. I mean, this is actually one of the shorter ones. He's made movies <laughs> uh, up to eight hours long in the past, and it's part of his methodology. He wants you to kind of feel like you're sort of lost in this world of experiences. He'll spend a whole hour just establishing moments and, and, and faces and places before any kind of narrative starts to take shape. And even then, you know, you could be three or four hours in and the plot will take some new direction. But there are, you know, legitimate surprises in this movie, which follows this Filipino community, this uh, sort of rural town um, in, in the midst of uh, dealing with sort of the dictatorship uh, in the about about 40 years ago. And um, it's it's devastating. It's beautiful black and white cinematography, uh, but uh, it's also incredibly well written. And I think if you stick with it, which obviously a lot of people won't, uh, at least in this part of the world, uh, it is very rewarding. So that that's one movie where I hope that you know somebody tries to figure out a way to get it out there, whether it's some kind of digital release or uh, you know a couple of repertory theaters or art houses decide to pick it up. But it's um, it has not found that outlet yet uh, this year. So. That, that one tops my list. Let's move along to... Uh... The best documentary is, uh, for me, Vim Vendors uh, and Juliana Salgado's uh, The Salt of the Earth, um, which um, hit me like a ton of bricks uh, at Telluride. Uh, it is, it's an HD... Uh, masterpiece in terms of showing you these incredible Salgado uh, photographs um, in, in in all their enormous glory, uh, you know, in a way that you could never have seen them before, as well as having the uh, photographer talk about them and 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 give give us the stories behind these astonishing uh, photographs and you actually run understand that he witnessed some of the horrors that have been perpetrated on on our in our world uh, more than most you know more than even some of the the war photographers that that run around uh, photographing things you know in the war zones he's been to these incredible places the the mines in Brazil the 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 places where the the forests are being torn up the, the places where people are dying in Ethiopia of starvation um, incredible places, and 
and it breaks your heart and but it's also astonishingly beautiful and you learn about his artistry and his his own um journey uh toward the light again after he he just sort of breaks down uh because of everything that he's had to to look at and and so i i highly recommend uh this movie yeah i coming out in the new year from sony pictures classics I finally thought because you've been raving about it so much over these last few weeks, and, and I, I have to agree, it is it's pretty great. Uh, my own favorite. It, it's really hard for me because this particular category has been really strong this year. I mean, there was the Roger Ebert documentary Life Itself, which is a, not just a great tribute to Ebert, but just a very well-told story about his you know, romance and so forth. I'm a big fan of The Overnighters. I'm a big fan of Robert Greene's Actress, which is a really interesting story. And Monica Mana, I think, was one of my, my favorite viewing experiences of the year. It's a really incredible kind of experimental experience. But overall, I would say my favorite documentary is, in fact, Citizen Four. And I choose that because when you say documentary, it seems to imply certain things. It's a misleading label. And a lot of times documentaries are ghettoized as a result. But to me, a documentary involves a certain kind of real-world activity involving not only uh, the subject but also the filmmaker. And so in this particular category, there was no other movie where it seemed like those two aspects were so well-realized. It's a really well-made movie about Snowden and who he is, at least intellectually, and, and the rationale for what he did. But it's also a narrative of its own making and shows you just how well Laura Poitras was able to navigate this situation in this increasingly, uh, you know, sort of digitized world where surveillance is, is ubiquitous. And it, it really gets under your skin. I've seen it twice now, and, and I think it's just so well done on so many different levels. It's, it, to me, it's just the best kind of example of what documentary filmmaking can and should be. So that's the top of my category. Let's move along to Best Actor. You got yours ready? I am going with Tom Hardy, um, who starred in Locke, which was a little bit like Birdman in the sense that he's um, he's inside a car for the entire movie, and he's under incredible duress. Every kind of dramatic thing is happening to him. He's in, under duress at his job. He's under duress with his wife and his family. He's under duress with this woman who, who who's on the phone, and all these people are on the phone. And he has to deal, and he it, you you learn who this man is. You you and he, and Tom Hardy has to just navigate all of these phone calls in the car for the entire movie, and it is compelling. People seem to be afraid of looking at movies like this. It's a little bit like All Is Lost, you know, in the sense that why would I go to a movie where there's one guy, you know, on a boat in the ocean? Well, check it out. It's it's a pretty remarkable feat uh, that he performs here. Well, my own my own favorite in the in the best actor category is one that I know you're a fan of of well and as well, which is Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler, uh, which is a movie that while it's, it's actually not on my top ten, it, it came very close in the runner up category as a whole. I think it's just an incredible kind of taxi driverist, taxi driver ish descent in, into the kind of creepiness of urban nighttime and also media critique. And Jake Gyllenhaal really brings that. Uh, element alive with this terrifying performance that ranks among the best I've seen him do ever because it's such a performance and some people may not get on board because of that but to me it's like it's it's basically a metaphor 
for the kind of world we live in today and the sort of dangers of feeling like you're the master of your own destiny with all these different kind of resources at your fingertips. And um, it just, it really, it creeps me out in the best possible way. Uh, I totally agree with that. Uh, I think it's an extraordinary performance. Um, and I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, the uh, last, then we have uh, Best Actress. So Felicity Jones, I'm picking for Theory mm. of Everything. And uh, one of the reasons I want to um, applaud her is that I believe that as good as that movie is, it would be nothing without her. In other words, just as the character she plays, um, Jane Hawking, makes it possible for Stephen Hawking to live, to survive, to flourish, to do all the amazing things that he did um, be by becoming an extension of him, by, by helping him to communicate, helping him to move, helping him to even exist. In the movie, Felicity Jones is doing the same thing for Eddie Redmayne. And that we're, it's all very easy to say, oh, well, he's the one who's contorted and he's the one who, who uh, had the high degree of difficulty. I would argue that she makes his performance possible as well. And therefore, uh, and the, the emotions, a lot of the emotions that we feel are through her, are via her. And, and there's one scene where she's trying to show him how to use a board uh, to communicate uh, that is just one of the best things I've seen any actress do in recent memory. Well, in terms of uh, actresses, you know, sort of communicating the emotions at work in, in the story, I, I was particularly uh, amazed by, by the way that that was accomplished by Essie Davis in The Babadook, which is my number one choice. Um, wow. And I have to tell you, I mean, it's, the movie is terrifying. Um, and, you know, it's basically about this creepy children's story and this, this single mother kind of dealing with her son and, and maybe losing her mind. It's got this repulsion element to it. And there's a sense of ambiguity to whether or not, you know, there's actually some kind of creepy force stalking them or if it's just, you know, her dealing with the trauma of, of losing her husband and other factors. But she is just so good in this in this film at conveying that ambiguity and the way that the movie ends up being more about her kind of fragile mindset and sort of dealing with loss and, and going through a process of, of kind of discovering her courage to, uh, you know, rebuild her life. Uh, in the context of a very scary horror movie was was such an amazing balancing act. So she absolutely topped my list as soon as I saw that movie at Sundance in January. I'm gonna have to see that. That that's one. I mean, I, I confess I'm a little scared to see it, but <laughs> but I can take it. You I can, can handle it. it. So my best anim anime <laughs> my best animated movie uh i'm gonna go with uh, it's a very it's, it's interesting i mean there's so, it's a strong group of, of films actually in the end um and i enjoyed elements of all of them um uh and i i, I think uh, uh lego movie would have been a, a, a you know was was a challenger for 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 screenplay but um i went with how to train your dragon too Mm. And the reason for that is that, A, I loved the first one. B, I think this is one of the rare sequels that actually improves on the original, expands the scope. The execution of the uh, animation is, is just sublime uh, with all the, 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 the dragons and the characters and the flying and the different landscapes. They opened it up a good deal. And it has uh, some tragedy. It has some Shakespearean qualities. It has uh, a, a real growth on on the part of the, of the lead characters. And I love this movie. So there you go. 
That's an interesting choice there. I mean, it, you know, at one point in the year, it did seem like that was the animated movie everyone was talking about, and then Lego Movie kind of changed things. But, you know, for me personally, I usually I pay pretty close attention to the animated films that come out throughout the year, and I've only been playing catch-up these last few weeks. I thought Song of the Sea was quite strong, and I, I was glad to have seen that. But ultimately, my fa- absolute favorite was The Tale of Princess Kaguya, the uh, Studio Ghibli film, which, uh, while over long in parts, is, is uh, still just really this beautiful, haunting experience about, you know, this this woman who kind of appears suddenly as an infant in the forest to this man, and, and he raises her to be a princess. And the way the story unfolds was so peculiar in the sense that it consolidates both, I think, like a classical mythology and this fairy tale quality with some really interesting observations about women in Japanese society and, and a lot of other sort of elements that, that are sort of embedded in this story with a really colorful uh, storybook approach to uh, the animation. So it was just, I, I mean, it maybe not the best year overall for animated films, but to me that was the best one that I, that I got around to check. I loved that film, as you know, so I applaud your, uh, applaud your choice. All right, we're ready for the real top ten. We're going to get right to it. Let's do it. And my number ten... Uh, not to belabor it, because we talked about this movie a lot at the beginning of the show, is Beyond the Lights. Oh, boy. I love Gina Prince-Bythewaite's directing and writing. I think she's a, a maverick who sticks to her guns and makes the films that she wants to make, even when other people won't let her. And uh, in this case, it took a while, but she got it done. And uh, I, I, I think she got the best performances. She stuck to uh, you know, casting uh, Gugu Mbatha-Ra. She insisted upon it, in fact. She's fled the studio uh to make it with her and uh i think uh nate nate parker's also uh, spot on in this and so so is the great uh mini driver so uh applause for beyond the lights well obviously the number 10 slot is for movies that we disagree on because mine goes to inherent vice uh which is, <laughs> you know, again maybe you just gotta see it again because let me tell you i saw it twice in a 12-hour period at the new york film festival mainly because I already had tickets to the evening screening, so it just sort of happened that way, but it allowed me to see just what a remarkably textured movie this is in terms of how it realizes an impossible text, how it taps into a certain kind of generational temperament through Joaquin Phoenix's character, and also it's it's fun and weird, but it's it's consolidating, I wouldn't say consolidating, it's sort of merging different genres in a really interesting way. I mean, it's sort of a stoner comedy. It's sort of a detective movie in the tradition of The Long Goodbye. But it's also neither of those things. I mean, there's some loose, funny stuff, but then there's also some much, much darker, uh, smaller moments. There's some very romantic moments. And so I just I thought it was just one more reminder that Paul Thomas Anderson is one of the great storytellers in America today. Well, well, well. My number nine is Wild Tales. Uh, ever since I saw it at uh, the Carl Levar Film Festival, which was closing night with a huge theater full of 2,500 people, I was astonished at what a crowd pleaser, and I mean that in a good way, uh, this omnibus tale, uh, set of tales. Uh, Tales actually is, and uh, Damien Cifran from Argentina. He wrote these these stories. They all relate to each other in the sense that it's about human beings unfettered by <laughs> the rules of social uh, commerce. They they react to road rage. They react to uh, car towing. Uh, they react to infidelity. Uh, they they do things that we would all love to do, but do not allow ourselves to. And in that way. 
it is one of the great universal, uh, fun, um, accessible uh, comedies to come along in a long time. And, and it has moved through one festival after another, uh, winning people over. And I bet it will wind up uh, in the running for the best foreign uh, Oscar. Wild Tales is a great time, and it's also just so weird, and I love that in movies, and it would be on some kind of extended list of mine. Certainly, it's, it's on, in some other categories for me, but the number nine slot for me goes to another very strange film, which is the double Richard Ayotte's movie, which is kind of an adaptation of this Fyodor Dostoevsky novel, uh, which stars Jesse Eisenberg and Mia Wasikowska. And, and it's, it's Eisenberg basically it lives this dead-end job in this noirish surreal uh, environment and uh, winds up being, you know, running into his double, somebody who looks just like him and is kind of replacing him and um, sort of dealing with this sense of dislocation in some really fascinating that, ways that are both funny but also kind of terrifying. And uh, I just thought it was, it was a great way for Iota, who's well-known in the UK more as, a, as an actor, and a, and, a, and a funny man to develop his style after his breakout uh, debut feature, The Submarine. But also, it's just it's a cool movie in the tradition of Brazil or something, kind of playing with the dystopian society that we've seen in movies like that, but also making it a little bit more uh, emotionally engaging because it's rooted in one character's personal struggle. So I really like the double, and I hope that more people get a chance to seek it out. It's 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 around now. It's just sort of forgotten at this time of year. Well, I should have caught up. Caught up. I should, listen to me. I can hardly speak at this point. I should have caught up with it. Um, Grand Budapest Hotel is my number eight. I saw it early in the year, as most of you did, and I I just think that Wes Anderson. This is the best film he's made. It's um, he's in control. He has created this extraordinary fictional universe. All all. All the details are there, the funicular, the and I went to Palavari and I saw the hotel poop, which was the inspiration for this for this movie, uh, for this hotel. And I think everything about it, all the actors, the ensemble, the crazy comedy, the the extraordinary uh, production design and costume design and, and music and everything else uh, comes together for a satisfying whole. And I, I just love this film. It's um it's an interesting choice and my my own uh slot for number 8 goes to another filmmaker who I think only seems to get better with time in some ways which is Jim Jarmusch Only Lovers Left Alive is just a really extraordinary uh, experience because it, it it has this hip sensibility, you know, this like almost fetishistic obsession with vinyl and, um, you know, the kind of the, the retro cool style of, of the vampires in the film is very Jarmushian. But at the same time, there's something that's very tender and, and philosophical about the way that these characters think about their place in the world as they're continually uh, more and more disconnected from it that I really found uh, satisfying and it stayed with me and, and I'm, uh, I have to tell you, I mean, it's a, it's a movie that I think uh, even though it's not in major award season conversations, I wish it were because it is the kind of thing that invites people into its weirdness. It's not, it's not holding people at arm's length and um, that's what Jarmusch is always so great at anyway and so it's just a, a great triumph for him. As you will see, I agree with you 100%. But my next uh, entry is uh, Selma. I feel very strongly that Ava DuVernay uh, managed to uh, wrestle uh, this problem uh, project that couldn't get made by anyone else. Um, she was ready 
she uh, figured out how to how to make it work. She uh, understood what was at stake, and she delivered. And so did David Ayelowo and uh, the cast and everyone else involved in this uh, that were serving, you know, a, a kind of need that needed uh, that, that had to be fed. And 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 they they have really pulled it off. Uh, and and we talked about it earlier in the, in the show. And 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 I think that's uh, to be commended. Well, I have to say, I mean, the the one that really blew me away in terms of, you know, can they pull this off uh, is a movie that I didn't fully understand on the basic level of dialogue when I first saw it, but it turned out that it didn't really matter. And that's Start Up, David McKenzie's prison drama, which stars Jack O'Connell, um, pre-Unbroken. Uh, I think it's a much better movie than Unbroken, and I think he's, he's extraordinary, and it's this gritty prison drama where he plays this guy who ends up being locked up in the same facility as his father and so it goes from being this very violent unsettling expose of prison life to more of a father-son bonding story and the accents are really thick um, and, and hard to understand and it was released without subtitles for a reason and part of that reason is that I think the story is really told in, cl- in, in close-ups and, and sort of uh, implications in, from behavior rather than sort of the nuances of the dialogue which I think even if you were to understand uh, the accents you know there's a lot of slang and stuff that does make it hard to follow and it, it gets across this idea that you know, you can't fully understand this world unless you're enmeshed in it, but the kind of emotional turmoil of it is universal, and so that really stood out to me, and it, and it finds itself at the uh, number seven slot on my list for that reason. My number uh, six slot goes to Powell Palakowski's Ida, an extraordinary uh, Polish uh, movie that's the uh, official Oscar entry, and I suspect will end up in the final uh, five. It is black and white. It is stunningly executed. One fabulous frame after another to look at, you know, just precisely, carefully wrought. And... um, it's a it's a story that seems to be uh, about a young nun and, and her uh, uh, family and what happened during the Holocaust, but it's also um, about what happened to this country uh, after uh, uh, it became uh, freed from the Soviet bloc, and 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 it's a it's a fascinating uh, examination of how um, history uh, does not unravel uh, quickly or easily. Well, I have to tell you, sometimes things really come together and we're on the same wavelength as much as sometimes we disagree. And in this case, uh, it is it is in fact just that with um, with my list, as, as Ida is also number six. <laughs> so it's great to feel like we're, we're standing on the same ground here. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie and I also love how it merges kind of a, an old school art house kind of look and feel to some degree with a, a much fresher kind of sensibility, especially in Exploring the the issue of, of sort of uh, reckoning with hol- the Holocaust, um, and and yet it's also very lively and funny in certain parts, and and really stuck with me because of that. Uh, my number five is Leviathan, uh, which is not the experimental fishing film from a year or so ago. It's uh, <laughs> the best screenplay winner at Cannes this year, Andrei Zavagnitsev's. Uh, film and I probably butchered his last name, but I'm not the first. No, you did well. So. I'm impressed. I, I, I've been I've been rehearsing that one because you know I really like the movie. It's um, this incredible sort of um, highbrow literary 
narrative about a, a Russian coastal town where this guy is fighting with a corrupt mayor who's trying to steal his property, and his, this entire world collapses both figuratively and literally with some really fascinating biblical overtones that I think are done in an incredibly classy way, but at the same time, it's, it's got this sweeping cinematic quality to it as things crumble that very much echo Tarkovsky and I think in, a, in an effective and appropriate way. But it's a movie that I saw it at Cannes late at night. I went home and I, just, I couldn't stop thinking through all these different moments in the movie. It's so wonderfully textured. So I hope that people get a chance to check it out because it's not an easy sell, but it's, uh, it's a really incredible movie. That was a very close uh, call. I, I, it almost made my list, and it was on it at one point, and I love that film. Um, as you know, I, I think the world of it. Um, mine, it, My next one is Only Lovers Left Alive, uh, so I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the, I believe this is Jarmusch's best work, I, I, his best film. I think he's taken his loves, his fetishes, his obsessions, his incredible literary and visual sensibility, and he's put it all in one movie somehow effortlessly, almost seemingly so. And the setting in Detroit and Tangier and the vampires and the sexiness of, of Hiddleston and, and Swinton so perfectly matched for each other. Wasikowska is great. Everybody's great. And um, uh, this is one of my favorite movies of the year, number five. And I'm going back to a film that you mentioned earlier for my number four slot, which is the Grand Budapest Hotel. There you go. Look, Wes Anderson is is this fascinating sort of paradox because some people find his, uh, you know, kind of overstatement in terms of how he stylizes everything from dialogue to art direction to music choices and so forth to be just too much, whereas other people love him just for that. But I think what this movie does is it takes all those factors and it deepens them. You know, the, the movie is in some ways a, an analogy for various different uh, periods in European history, and it does go to certain dark places, but it does so without changing what we see as sort of Wes Anderson's strength. So it's a very natural evolution, and it's such a fun movie, too. It does remind me to some degree of sort of the zippy energy of screwball comedies uh, yes. from the 30s and 40s, and it's just great to see that alive, you know, whether it's being made on a big studio scale or, or some by somebody like Wes Anderson. But I'm, I'm, I am glad that it's him because this is definitely, um, you know, further proof that he's just one of the best filmmakers working today. By the way, one of the um, things that we didn't say before is that that film is, is gaining traction right now, so that's a good thing. Yeah. Some people, uh, like Entertainment Weekly, have put my next uh, number four choice on their worst films of the year, and I like to think that they did it because they knew they'd get traffic uh, <laughs> if they did it, because whenever we put up a post about Nymphomaniac uh, at, at IndieWire, no matter where or how or in what guise, it gets traffic. Uh, it's just one of those things. Um, I love I love Lars von Trier. I always have. I find him to be uh, this crazy, visually gifted, incredibly smart and witty and puckish and nasty and smarmy and brilliant guy who who's out of his gourd and yet he somehow manages to channel all of that into these films apparently under the influence of something or other most of these years since he said he recently went sober and said that every single movie he's ever made has been under the under the influence of so for but we cannot trust what he says anyway but now that he's sober he's willing to talk to the press again so that's a good thing. Anyway, Nymphomatic 1 and 2, however it came to be, is one of the most intelligent, most uh, provocative, and uh, least 
uh, sensational uh, movies. It is not about shocking us, really. It's not about turning us on erotically. It's about exploring this woman and her uh, her obsession with sex in a way that is uh, actually more about uh, someone who's rather tortured and and disturbed than anything else. And uh, um, her interaction with Stefan Star Stellan Stellan Skarsgård uh, is 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 remarkable. And uh, I I love both of the parts, and I think the movie is one of the great films of the year. Well, I, I enjoy Nymphomaniac. I think it's a good time. My number three slot doesn't go to a movie that's anything like that, except that I would say that it, it, it is provocative in the sense that it's not for people who are, you know, sort of good at slow burn experimental filmmaking. And that's Monica Mana, uh, which is the latest effort from Harvard Sensor Ethnographic Lab, which did Leviathan, the fishing documentary I mentioned earlier. They also did Sweetgrass. Monica Mana is uh, basically, uh, it was shot in the Nepal Valley for, uh, about a year uh, with a series of, of 10 minute rides that took place in the confines of this cable car traveling to the entrance to a temple um, and when I saw it for the first time with an audience at a film festival you know obviously some people were kind of bored in the first 10 minutes watching this man and a boy quietly travel across this beautiful landscape exit and then somebody else came in and they went back in the other direction. But about 25 minutes in, a whole lot of people left, like after three or four trips like this. And I was sort of like, well, why didn't you guys just leave in the first trip? And I think it's because <laughs> there's something about this movie where people, they're, they're watching and they're looking for it to become something. And then it, it becomes something they've never seen before rather than what they expect it to be, which is a narrative. Uh, but it becomes uh, a real uh, poignant statement on, on what it means to be alive because the diversity of faces that you see come through from these musicians to these bubbly teenagers to at one point a set of goats ends up being a meditation on just what people are in a way that I'd never experienced in a movie. And a lot of people did walk out of that screen, but it found its audience by the end, and that's been the life of this movie. It just feels like something special you can share with people who want to have that special experience. So that's my that's number three. That's still on my screener pile. I will get to it. Um, my number three is Mr. Turner. Mike Lee sitting in the uh, theater there at the you know in the middle of the Lumiere at Cannes, um, watching this extraordinarily beautiful movie wash over me. It's about art. It's about commerce. It's about this great character, this artist. Obviously, Mike Lee was channeling something here and. So are all the actors, as always. Timothy Spall and others are extraordinary. Um, I was completely immersed in this period, completely immersed in this story and this character and his work and his his art. And I um, found it to be, uh, and there's a romance as well. I found it to be one of the great Mike Lee movies, and I will not back off of this position. It is one of the great Mike Lee movies, and it's definitely, you know, in, in some ways... Uh, a movie that that is like Monica Mana, a hard sell for some people because it's not a traditional narrative and it's not a, it's not um you know it's 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 long and slow in some parts but it is really involving and, and beautiful if you stick with it. Um, another film that I felt that way about is my number two film, which is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, uh, the first feature of of a filmmaker named Anna Lily Amirpour. It's a people tend to say an Iranian vampire movie in black and white, which is kind of true, but not exactly true. I mean, it's really more just like this wonderful uh, evocation of, of isolation and uh, not just uh, oppression, but more uh, sort of 
what it means to be a romantic loner. Um, it does have echoes of Jarmusch to some degree, but it's also got a style that's sort of its own thing. I detected a little bit of Bellatar in there, uh, lots of, of sort of quiet, uh, pensive moments that are punctuated with am- amazing music cues and these really um, kind of intimate moments between different characters where they lock eyes and, and you, you feel like you're just you're drawn into the kind of the, the beauty of the movie uh, from the filmmaker's perspective and so it's not only a great discovery with this new uh, director on the scene, but also just uh, a great uh, sort of testament to, to the way the movies can keep surprising us with, with different kinds of ways to tell a story. And it's, I've seen it a couple of times, and it surprises me each time with new kind of insights into to the way that it, it makes its world so involving. So that that was a great discovery for me. And drum roll, because we're coming up on the on the big finale here. Well, my number two is Boyhood. And again, as I said earlier, it is hard to pick between my top two. You can guess what my top one is now. But um, Boyhood, Richard Linklater, uh, applause, applause, uh, enough said. Well, why don't you give us your number one, too, since we're... uh... We're just about I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I went with Birdman. Uh, Birdman, Inaritu, Lebesky, Norton, Keaton, Watts, Riseborough, the whole gang, Stone. You know, that, that this is an extraordinary, you know, there's, it makes sense that actors love this movie. It makes sense that this is one of the great visual achievements of the year. Um, it's one of the great analyses of our industry, of, of, of the kinds of ego problems that we all have. We all have an inner bird man. Um, I just think it's a, it's extraordinary, and um, that's why I went with it for number one. I dig Birdman. It's a good time, but I'm going to go to Boyhood. Uh, it's been my number one for so long, and I kept rethinking it, you know, just to kind of question my assumptions that this was, in fact, my favorite movie of the year, because it almost feels like an obvious choice. You see it on a lot of lists, and the way that this kind of stuff happens, you know, consensus can kind of hijack a conversation, but I think we can agree that, you know, the thing with Boyhood that's so fascinating is that it's not it's not just that it's a great movie uh, as a piece of filmmaking. It's not just that they pulled off making this movie over the course of 12 years. It's that it it's both of those things in equal measures, and yet it doesn't overplay any of that stuff when you watch it as a movie. It's, it's very unassuming in its artistry, and that is the work of a great movie. I and agree with that. Just, I agree with that. You know, and, and, you know, we could argue about whether or not Birdman is sort of the opposite thing, is that it's, it's over-assuming. And there's it's something showier. Sort of, it's showier, yes. and there's something liberating and exciting about its willingness to go there. But I actually think Boyhood is, is truly the boldest accomplishment. And, you know, frankly, when you live in, in this space that we do where we cover the indie world, you know, it's always exciting to see a movie that, that kind of bursts out of that kind of sentiment of, of, of trying to do something that a studio would never do and it gaining, it has gained widespread recognition and respect for what it it's is. Wonderful. And, so, yeah. It's wonderful. I thought at the beginning that it would be the one to beat and nothing has come up to it. Nothing has come close to it. And I believe that it will probably win this picture at the end of the year and deserves to do so. Well, so now we're back to the same situation we were a week ago where it was a Monday and the Gotham's and uh, the New York Film Critics Circle both released their awards and it was Boyhood in one and and Birdman in the other. So we've now accurately represented that divide and I guess the uh, story will continue next week as as these two movies continue to vie for the top spot. Or who knows, maybe Selma will uh, crack it. Next week it is. Um, I will. I will. Uh, I hope. I hope everybody got 
got through this long thing, but uh, it was it was fun having Chris and uh, fun going through this with you, uh, Eric. Uh, a few things I need to catch up with still. Always a pleasure. And check out our other top ten lists on the site. we got a lot more coming. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.